1985 was a time of upheaval and change for New Zealand, a country carving out a new identity. David Longy, one of our youngest ever Prime Ministers, was on the world stage leading the charge for New Zealand's anti-nuclear stance. Give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. <laughs> I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards <laughs> The recognition of te reo as an official language of New Zealand was around the corner, as was homosexual law reform. We are citizens of this country. We demand our rights as citizens of New Zealand. New Zealand had just witnessed the first act of terrorism on our shores, the bombing of Greenpeace's Rainbow Warrior by French foreign intelligence at the ports of downtown Auckland. Somebody blew up our boat which killed photographer Fernando Pereira. They ripped her guts out and killed one of her crew. But it was the death of another man, Arthur Easton, that grabbed headlines on the 14th of October. A masked intruder stabbed a middle-aged Papakura man to death last night and left his victim's two sons injured in the attack, which took place in their own home. Well, that was an ugly sort of weapon. It didn't look as though it... it do you any mischief? People were happy here, they didn't lock their doors. Forensic science then was pretty rudimentary compared with how it is today. I looked at it and I thought, surely that didn't cause all these wounds that we've got. The killing is the latest in a series of major crimes that have plagued Auckland police. I think everyone really wanted to catch a person who could do such a thing on a Sunday night in someone's home. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. I've retraced the steps of the killer, interviewed witnesses who were never called to testify, and uncovered evidence that was never submitted to the court. He turned around and said I should have killed the black bastard. This is the story of the murder of Arthur Easton and the conviction of Alan Hall, a man with no alibi or answers. I think the jury would have been at least in two minds, if not pretty convinced that it would be wrong to convict him. But it's also a story about our system of justice, the power and trust we give to police and prosecutors and their ability to find the truth. It's a pity it's so late for people like Alan Hall. My name is Alan Hall, and I was wrong with three convicted of the murder of Arthur Easton. It's possible in a crime story for the names of the victims to get lost. As the names of the accused and the guilty become etched into our minds, victims of crime can disappear, left out of the narrative and forgotten. Who was Heyman Lee? Just think of Adnan Sayed. Who was Teresa Halbach? Think of Stephen Avery. Who was Susan Boudet? Think of Tana Pora. In the retelling of a person's murder, the person themselves, who they were, what they enjoyed, who they loved, can too easily be erased. You know, in a courtroom, you only get to answer the questions that you're asked. For Jeanette Kidd, the nurse who lived next door to Arthur Easton and his sons, the woman who ran over to treat Arthur's wounds after he was stabbed by an intruder in his hallway on the night of October 13, 1985, she simply wanted the opportunity to tell people who Arthur was. It was a bit frustrating, really, because I, I thought there were things that they might have asked. So 33 years later, I asked Jeanette the question that the lawyers hadn't. 
What were the most important things that you wanted to say but you weren't able to? I wanted to say what a nice family they were and what a nice man Arthur was, but I guess it wasn't, I don't guess it was relevant. Who Arthur was is relevant as a matter of respect and as a reminder of what was lost to the Eastern family that night. It's hard to paint a complete picture of him, but there are glimpses from what his sons told police and from the obituaries posted in the newspaper and from his wife Angela, who spoke to the media in the days after the murder. Arthur and Angela had separated, but they continued to raise their children together between the two homes. I feel really devastated, really. It's very tragic that a man in the prime of his life, with a lot of good years ahead of him, we brought up a large family together, been through our trials and tribulations. Um, we're very proud of our family. We feel we've done well with them. <laughs> and we wanted both to see our grandchildren and in the future. <laughs> and all their weddings and that. One of our boys is getting married uh, in February and his father won't be here now. Arthur Easton was a keen reader. Anything by Wilbur Smith was a good bet for birthday or Christmas presents. He was a religious man, a Catholic who went to church most Sundays. He was a family man, a father of five who was hugely proud of his children's achievements. He was a respected technician at the Papakura Telephone Exchange where he worked for 37 years. He enjoyed a weekly pint and a game of snooker at the local workingmen's club. And he was a man whose life ended in the hallway of his home. The working class suburb of Papakura was a quiet, family-friendly place, the kind of neighbourhood where people knew each other. Papakura was its own council, uh, only 24, 25,000 people. Um, a military town um, where khaki was seen up the streets and down the side alleys all the time. George Hawkins was the mayor of Papakura from 1983 till 1992. It had the problems with young populations like most other towns, but uh, generally people were happy here, they didn't lock their doors. But after the murder of Arthur Easton, locals say it felt like something changed. People generally absolutely stunned to have your house invaded. And this is before the term home invasion was being used. Um, you know, on a Sunday night, around about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, something like that, um, people just couldn't believe it. Did it change how people viewed their own home security. Yeah, people were generally very nervous. I think everyone really wanted to catch a person who could do such a thing on a Sunday night in someone's home. Driving through Papakura now, um, you can kind of tell it's still, still a lot of families um, live here. Um, you see a lot of young people walking on the street, there's retirees and their little mobility scooters with the flag flying behind. Um, and indeed, a lot of parts of Papakura, like the streets that I've seen mentioned in the police file, a lot of it um, does look the same as it did uh, 33 years ago. We're just going up to Grove Road, so here's Grove Road. Cool. Police photographs of Arthur Easton's home at the time of the murder show a well-maintained low-lying bungalow. Its grey brick exterior looks solid and homely. 
There are wooden slats over the windows and small conifer trees outside the front door. The chain link gate out front is painted white and there's a tall row of hedges that leads up one side of the driveway. It looks smart and loved. It's a place for raising kids, not losing your life on a Sunday night. But yeah, these days, driveway's quite cracked. The hedging has actually either died away or been cut down and fortunately the eastern house looks quite worse for wear actually. The house is currently on the market, so my producer Maggie and I are using an open home to have a look inside. It's currently tenanted, so when we visit, we wait for permission from the tenants before we head in. Once a murder happens, it sets in motion a tried and true investigative process homicide detectives come to know off by heart. Well, I started working on homicides as a young detective in the mid-1980s. Former Detective Senior Sergeant Dave Pizzini knew the cops in the Arthur Eastern homicide investigation. I ran uh, 14 homicide investigations, all of which were in um, South Auckland. I've asked him to explain how the Grove Road scene and any homicide would have been processed. There's four key words there. One is to clear the scene. Another one is to freeze it, preserve everything within the scene, and to control the scene. On the night of the murder, when police first arrived at about 8.12pm, Arthur Easton was still alive. What's the role when police arrive and the victim is still alive? Preservation of life is always paramount. So if the victim is still alive, every effort is made to recover the victim from the scene as quickly as possible, get them in an ambulance and get them to the A&E department. Um, in doing so, you try and minimise contamination to the scene, but that's secondary. That meant it was not possible to control and freeze the crime scene. Saving the life is paramount. Arthur could not be saved and died at 8.35. As one detective would later recall, this was a crime scene that had been severely contaminated. From that point onwards, it was then up to the officers to find what evidence the scene offered up. Uh, forensic science then was pretty rudimentary compared with how it is today. Um, we had no DNA technology back then, and so the best we had was ABO blood grouping. There were all the other categories of forensic science, such as shoe prints, hairs. Hello. <laughs> As we enter, the kitchen is on the right. It was on the wallpaper beside the kitchen door that police located the first of three unidentified fingerprints found on or near the crime scene. So is that north or south? It's the hallway of the home, though, that we're most interested in. It was there that Arthur Easton, his two sons and the intruder fought, all four of them crowded into the far corner by the back door. It's an unremarkable place to stand in, and what's striking is how small it is just over one metre wide and nine metres long, with the property's four bedrooms leading off each side. So it's four bedrooms? Facing the back door, Kim Eason's bedroom would have been on the left. He was in there listening to ELO when the intruder let himself in through the back door. To the right is the spare room. These days, it's a bedroom. But in 1985, it was where Brendan first encountered the man who broke into their home that night. Somebody's sleeping. It's just an average width hallway, isn't it? Yeah. 
And as I kind of stand in the hallway and walk in a circle, um, it was in this area that police pinpointed 23 different blood samples um, in the area where the fight took place, ranging in size from tiny spots uh, to a large blood stain on the carpet where Arthur took his last breath, which by reference to the photographs is probably around here. Um, those samples are marked A through uh, W, um, rather a, an ordered record of a chaotic scene. Uh, there was blood on the door handle, blood on the phone that Brennan had used to call 111, which would have been about there, blood on the carpet, and as we mentioned before, it was a scene even more confused by the uh, efforts of um, emergency services to try and save Arthur's life. So I'm now standing uh, near the back door, and it was actually here that the intruder left the first two key pieces of evidence. We had the bloodied military bayonet and a brown woolen hat that Arthur actually snatched off the head of the killer um, before he fled into the night. From the photographs from the 80s, it's quite a different property now. I go have a nosy yeah. right to the back. Big lawn, eh? When you look out the back door of Grove Road, there's a huge backyard. It's a traditional quarter-acre Kiwi section. There's a shed to the right and a double garage with a basketball hoop hanging above the door. It appears to be the same one that hung in 1985, the one that was used by Brendan and Kim when they were kids. Running the length of the property, there's an imposing six-foot wooden fence. This fence separates the house from the alleyway. In 1985, it was a hedge that separated the Easterns from the walkway. It was bushy at the top but sparse at the bottom. And from police photographs, you can see that there were sections of the hedge a person could easily step through into or from the alley on the other side. What is the street behind? Alma Crescent. Is it Alma Crescent? I guess Alma Crescent, yeah. And do you know if it's used a lot, the walkway? It was in the hedge. Then investigators later found fibres, some blue, which matched with Witness A's description of a man wearing a blue hooded top. And it was by the hedge, in mud softened by the recent rain, that the intruder had left the third vital piece of evidence discovered on the night of the murder. A single shoe print from a Barter Spark sneaker. In crime scene photographs, you can see that the police marked the spot with the most Kiwi of possible markers, a tenor Milo. The killer used local walkways to escape from the scene, and this use of local shortcuts indicates someone with a detailed knowledge of the area. The walkway remains the same as it did back then, so it's possible to recreate the exact route of the offender. I'm just interested to see how, how long it takes me if I sprint at full tack from the hole in the hedge to where the guy was seen by witness. Say how long that took. This is the route that um, Jim Donald and his police dog Samurai tracked the offender down. There's a there's a couple of construction worker guys here, so I'm just, just going to let them know what I'm doing so they don't think that I'm running from some crime scene. Oh, hey, man, just to just let you know, do, do, um, I'm just um, uh, timing myself running from a spot up there to a spot over there. It's oh, just okay. for, so don't, yeah, just if you wonder why I'm sprinting. Thanks, man. Nice guy. So I'm just going to see if I can time myself running distance. Right, I'm off. Jeez. <laughs> Not as fat as I once was. So this is <coughs> down the route. 
a fender apparently took <laughs> coming up to the corner of Albert Crescent. Jeez. Took me about two minutes to run from the murder scene to this spot, a distance of about 400 meters, where witness A said he saw a suspicious man running. And he crosses over the road and the offender ran across and there's a walkway. If you can't tell from all my huffing and puffing there, I just ran from the murder scene to outside number five and seven Alma Crescent, the point where the police tracker dog Samurai lost the scent of the intruder that night. So the police definitely thought the offender, at least initially, was local because of his knowledge and use of these walkways to get away from the scene really quickly. It's an interesting feature actually, there's quite a lot of these walkways that kind of crisscross the neighbourhood. And yeah, it's another interesting thing that I was told by a police dog handler. You'll remember that Jim Donald said the conditions on the night were ideal for tracking and apparently if a person is running and is full of adrenaline and sweat then that, that can actually help enhance the scent they leave behind in terms of what the dog's able to pick up. It's quite a... something I had not known before that. Three key pieces of evidence. A bayonet, distinctive and bloodied. The hat, brown and pretty unremarkable. And a partial footprint in the mud. Investigators were confident that such distinctive articles, particularly the bayonet, would lead to the perpetrator. Someone must know who owns a hat like this and who has a bayonet, the type that we're interested in. And I believe this will lead us uh, to the offender. That's Detective Senior Sergeant Calvin McMinn, one of the heads of the murder inquiry, speaking to reporters in 1985. One police officer who attended the Grove Road murder scene has asked not to be named. So from now on, I'll call him Police Officer One. It was a close-knit police community, uh, all supportive of each other. Was there a lot of crime, or was it just like any other part of Auckland? Uh, there was a lot of crime in the Papagura Police District, but the uh, the boys had a fairly good finger on most of the criminals responsible. What was the most common crimes that were going on at that time? House burglary, car thefts, narcotics. And what made catching a bayonet-wielding offender more difficult was the fact that Police Officer One says it was typical for new gang prospects at the time to carry knives. We had a lot of young people uh, starting to go off uh, the beaten track and um, basically uh, turn the wrong way. You know, economics and gangs. We had a lot of gang presence in Papakura Manirua. And so was it an instance where people would carry bayonets or knives as a form of defence or you know, to help them facilitate crime? The young and up-and-coming gang prospects would have certainly been armed. Um, their giveaway during that time was the one-leg rolled-up trouser up to the knee was generally a sign of being tooled up in some sort of fashion. Um, that was especially amongst the uh, Pacifica gang groups. While police got on with the investigation, rumours began to fly around Papakura, fed by a steady stream of leads and clues from the police and media. The killer was a gang member, and the killing was an initiation gone wrong. He was a one-legged crook and had fled to Hamilton. Indeed, such was the brazen nature of the murder, 
As this detective memo records, police speculated for a time that the offender had a psychiatric history. The demonic nature of the offence indicated that releases from the local mental hospital certainly warranted attention. The manner in which the offender entered a well-lit and obviously occupied home in the early evening, plus the fact that the offender decided to stand and fight the occupants while armed with a bayonet rather than flee, indicates this offender may well have a mental history. And there were tip-offs from members of the public keen to catch a dangerous criminal. There was the bricklayer who told police he'd been attacked by a bayonet-wielding burglar in 1983. The hairdresser who saw two teenagers passing a knife between them at a takeaway bar. And the school caretaker who saw a black power gang member with a long blade. But despite all their lines of inquiry, by October 23rd, the day of Arthur Easton's funeral, police were getting no closer to an arrest. The cortege took the body for burial at the South Auckland Cemetery. I joined the police in 1980 and I left at the beginning of 1989, so I did just bang on nine years. In 1985, Bruce Hesketh was a detective constable and brand new member of the CIB, the branch of police that investigates serious crimes. He was put on the General Inquiries team on day one of the investigation. Our job was to attend to calls that were coming in from the public public information going, following up on things like that. Bruce told me that most murders are carried out by people who are readily identified, that is, people who are known to the victim. These are what the police call name and address murders. But the Eastern case was different. I mean, this was a real whodunit. Uh, we worked some very long hours on that inquiry and, uh, you know, we'd, you'd, you'd, you'd take days off um, when they were when they were given to you, but usually you'd work eight days in a row, and then you know you're working sort of anywhere between twelve and um, twelve hours plus longer sometimes. One of Bruce's first roles in the inquiry was to interview witness A. Witness A was described in the last episode: a driver who saw a suspicious person running near the scene of the murder and checking back over his shoulder. I would describe this person as male mouldy, dark blue sweatshirt with a hood. I was unable to get a good look at his face because of the hood. Witness A's sighting has always been of huge significance to this case because he was able to be very specific about what he saw. Witness A had been on the way to the local ATM and the timestamp from the receipt puts his sighting somewhere between 8.06 and 8.07pm. I, I certainly can recall having seen the statement, um, uh, the importance of what he saw. Yeah. Um, and I always considered that that, that was highly relevant to the case. Uh, the description he gave was of a person that was anywhere between five foot seven and six foot, mm. uh, male Maori, gave a description of the clothing. But this is where the Arthur Easton murder investigation takes its first fateful twist. Because while Witness A was telling Bruce Heskiff the man he saw was Māori, the evidence of the night's other two key witnesses, Brendan and Kim, began to change. Although they'd initially said the perpetrator was Māori, by the next morning, the boys said they were no longer certain. I can't tell you what race he is, Brendan told a detective. There was nothing about the person that I can tell you that might help with the identification. It was a shift in description that would set in motion the sequence of events that in December 1985 would lead police to the doorstep of a local, slim, 5'7", Pākehā man. Described by his mother as a 
little slow mentally, a little immature, a shy person who had difficulty making friends. And then uh, Alan Hall seemed to just land on our lap. His name was Alan Hall. In the next episode of Grove Road. He was very considerate, thoughtful, and he's just not violent at all. He might not have been the brightest light in the chandelier, mate, but no way. I, I, to this day, I still do not believe it. I've been committed to murder. I didn't know the family. Why should I go there in the first place? No. I know I didn't do it. I've got the grave. No, no, I didn't do it. Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wicks. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia, Vinay Ranchhood and James Brown. With help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Roman Newson, Anand Hira, Kari Johnson, Michael Mora and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz forward slash podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad at mediaworks.co.nz.